Hello, everyone. It's great to be back with you after a much-needed summer break, and I can think of no better way to kick off Season 2 of Grace Moments than with a guest I tremendously admire and whom I'm excited to welcome back for a second appearance on the podcast. A couple of years ago, Dr. Lee Warren opened up to us on the episode Beneath the Surface about his personal journey through war and personal loss and how he found faith again while in the fire of life. Today he's back with us, and he's also just released a brand new book called Hope is the First Dose. It's a treatment plan for how people can recover from tragic and traumatic experiences and details how Dr. Warren himself applied this after losing his teenage son several years ago. You won't want to miss this incredible conversation, so please join Dr. Warren and me as we talk through some of the main points of his book and glean from his wisdom as a trauma survivor himself. Here now is my discussion with neurosurgeon and author, Dr. Lee Warren. It's an absolute pleasure to have with me once again, my friend, mentor, and favorite expert on all things brain health, neurosurgeon and Dr. Lee Warren. Welcome back to the Grace Moments podcast, Dr. Warren. Thank you, Catherine. It's so good to see you again. You have a new book out, and we're going to be diving into that some today. But I first wanted to start off by just asking you what motivated you to write this at this point in your life. Just briefly summarize what the book is about and what you hope people will take away from reading it. You know, we lost a son back in 2013, as you know, um, from having read my previous book. And um, that book really wasn't about loss. It was about um, how I, as a doctor, could help people grapple with hard things. And and as I was learning that is when we lost our son. So it was it was kind of a one of those learning how to apply what I'd been learning for other people's benefits. And I always felt after that book came out um, that I told you sort of that we made it through and we found our faith again and we kind of got back on our feet. But I, I felt like as a doctor, I needed to tell you how we did that. And, and I needed to not write another memoir, but to write a book to sort of explain the the treatment plan that we found that that helped people helped us mm-hmm. find our way back to hope and faith again after we went through that sort of devastating loss. And so, I felt like I could write a more prescriptive book rather than descriptive, like my previous one. And so, people always ask what are, what do they have in common? It's really um, picking up where the previous book left off and telling you um, a way that you can move forward to when things happen in your life. One of the first things you mention in your book is that most of our life is about trying to reconcile two seemingly opposite things that Jesus promises us, that we'll have difficulty in this world and that he came to give us abundant life to the full. Your treatment plan helps align these two realities. Can you talk about this a little bit? Yeah. You know, some people talk about how the Bible has contradictions and I don't believe it does. Um, but some of those that seem like contradictions are hard to reconcile. You, know, you have Jesus in John 16, 33 saying, in this world, you're going to have trouble. And in John 10, 10 saying, I came here that you can have abundant life. And so how do you have an abundant life in a world where you're having trouble all the time? And and so I I need to find a way in my mind as a scientist, like how if I'm going to believe that there's there's no contradiction and that Jesus, that God never lies and everything he says is true. Which you need to believe, by the way, if you, if you lose a child, and you need to believe that that stuff about the resurrection and and reuniting with your family and all that, you need to believe that that's true. And so then you have to start trying to reconcile these things that might seem like contradictions. And so for me, I, I don't know where I first came across it, but the 
the whole notion of what happens in quantum physics came to me one day. And again, I think God speaks to us in our places where we are, are gifted in the things that make sense to us. And for me, science and math and all those kinds of things make sense. And in quantum physics, there's this, this well-known phenomenon where an electron can be in two places at the same time, where mm. when you get down to the quantum world and you start modeling things and looking at how atoms behave, it's, it's understand it's understood that electrons don't act like things that we can see with our eyes in the big world. And so when you realize God who invented electrons can make an electron be in two places at one time, then you can start to understand, well, maybe I can actually have a hard world, but it's also an abundant world. Maybe those two things make sense. And so mm -hmm. somehow in my crazy brain, <laughs> that kind of made sense. And I started seeing these other things that you have to accept when you lose somebody, you have to accept that, I'll always be sad about losing my son, for example, but I also have to accept that I have four other children and now four grandchildren and they all have amazing lives and I've got all this purpose mm -hmm. and meaning in my life and a beautiful practice and amazing wife and, and all these things. And so I had to start seeing these, these sort of ands, right? There's, there's loss and there's beauty and there's, there's hurt and there's purpose and, and all these things kind of smash together. And, and I just, I saw it in the same way that I see that reality in quantum physics It's an equation that once you understand it, you can see, yeah, these two things can both be true at the same time. They don't invalidate each other and they don't contradict each other. Before we go deeper into some of the points in hope is the first dose, can you just briefly summarize your definition of the massive thing? Yeah. So everybody these days is talking about trauma. You know, we're all talking about trauma and the things we've experienced and the hurts that we've gone through. And, and we all understand that, you can have trauma when you have a car accident and, and break your leg. That's trauma. But it's also trauma when you have a childhood experience where your uncle does something he ought not to have done or your mm -hmm. wife leaves you or something happens emotionally. So these traumas can be mental wounds and emotional wounds as well as they can be physical ones. And then there's tragedies, you know, these things that happen to people around us that we don't understand that, that somebody dies or somebody gets cancer, these things that are visible and seeable and knowable. But then there's this this other whole other category of these massive things that hurt us, but aren't necessarily traumas like car accidents or tragedies like someone dying. And, and it can be, you lose the dream that you've been chasing your whole life, Catherine, you know, you're, you, I've got a friend who thought he was going to play in the NFL and then he tears his ACL in college and he's not going to play in the NFL. He spent his whole life aiming at that target and it's not going to happen. It hurts. It's a wound. And for some people that creates the same kind of emotional trauma that losing a person does. And so I just wanted to include those folks that maybe their massive thing isn't their son died. Maybe it's not that their mom got glioblastoma and died when they were 12. You know, it, it, it maybe it's not that maybe it's something emotional or something less visible, but just as real. So Lisa and I talk about these massive things or TMTs, we call them that are just to, to make sure that we are talking to every human because every human's going to go through something that really hurts, even if it's not a death or a cancer or a bad diagnosis. Mm -hmm. That's good. You described very vividly the honest side of how you emotionally felt in the wake of losing your son, Mitch. Um, the anger you dealt with, how your grief for a time challenged your faith to the absolute max. One thing I recall someone saying about grief is that there comes a time when you have to forgive God for what happened. Um, I'm not trying to get into the theology of that, but I do think there's a degree to which we come to a place in our loss where we stop holding God responsible. Um, we let God off the hook, so to speak, and release ourselves of the feeling that 
you know, God's solely at fault. Um, how did that whole process play out for you? Well, I think it's, you said you don't want to get into theology, but I think you almost have to, to really understand this because you can't really move forward in your life. If you think God capriciously strikes people out of your life or does things to harm you, if if you believe that God is acting on those ways, you can't really forgive him and you can't really move on because at the same time, just like we just talked about, you need to believe in those characters and qualities of God that the Bible lays out that he's good and he's for you and he wants what's best for you and that he wants to prosper you and not harm you. And you can't reconcile that if you believe that he smut, you know, was the one that smote your son or, or the one that took somebody away from you. So, so I think it's really important to get crystal clear on the theology that, that God is working out a plan over the long arc, the narrative arc of human history that is to redeem us and restore us to his original plan, which was for us to be with him in harmony and there'd be no sin and no disease and all that. Mm -hmm. And if that's true, then all of the things that happen in our lives can be used to help us refine us, Isaiah says, to um, help us to find meaning and purpose. And, And the New Testament says character, you know, suffering produces character and character produces hope. And so all these things can can be used to help us. But God isn't out there striking you and hurting you, but he will be with you when those things happen. And so for us, it came to that's a long preamble to say for us, we had to get back to the place where we remembered who he is and remembered what we believed about him. And that's why it's so important to know scripture and to know what's true and what God says of himself, because we put a lot of things, the culture puts a lot of things out there like, oh, God will never give me more than I can handle and things like that, that don't turn out to be in the Bible, that that don't turn out to be scripture or good theology. And so I think it's really crystal clear before we start blaming God for things to understand what is and is not in his character and what he does and does not do. And once you understand that, then you can start placing the blame for things where it rightfully belongs. And for my case, bad people in a, in a bad situation, put a knife in my son's neck and we'll never understand that. And it could have been a fight. It could have been mental illness. We don't know what happened. And we don't even know if the knife was in his hand or in somebody else's hand, but we know that that event was not something that God wanted to happen. God didn't want that to happen. He loved Mitch and he loved that other boy that was in that room with him. And he loved, if there was a third party, he loved that person too. And he didn't want that to happen. But once that happens, then the the quest for the rest of us is what do we do with the rest of our lives? How do we figure out what God is about and where we are in this and how his supposedly good plans for us still can come true. And so I, I had to come to grips with what I really thought was sound theology of suffering. And that does not include God being capricious or or mean or hateful or any of those things. He can't be because it's against his character. And if he is, then the Bible isn't true. And so you've got to grab onto something that's true. And the best way to do that is to know what the word actually says. Yeah. One of the things I appreciate that you address in your book is the reality and presence of physical pain in the grieving process. Um, I don't think this is something that's talked about enough, to be honest. Um, People expect tears or sadness, but when the body starts breaking down under the stress of carrying that burden of grief, it's, it's unexpected. It's surprising. Can you delve a bit into the area that this idea that our bodies keep the score of what we've been through and how we can perhaps learn to be gentle with ourselves under these types of situations. 
Absolutely. And, you know, it's becoming crystal clear through the research and you just referenced the body keeps the score, which is a great book written by Bessel van der Kolk. Mm -hmm. um, and he basically was one of the first ones to write about this in a popular way. Um, but the research is, is piling up that it's crystal clear that what you think about and what you experience and what you feel in your brain turns into stuff in your body that's real. And there's good research, for example, that loneliness produces cardiovascular disease worse than smoking does like so so emotional things that happen in our lives hurt our physical bodies and i always find it interesting when the bible backs something up that science finally figures out you know back in way back in the book of lamentations from thousands of years ago he talks about how this extreme stress that he's going through grinds his teeth to gravel and, and breaks his bones and you know grinds him down to ash and and i found myself after my son died my hair turned gray like this patch of my hair i was really blonde before my son died and like a week later this patch of my hair turned gray it's mostly gray now 10 years later turn gray like overnight i developed shingles in my shoulder blade on my right side overnight i broke three molars in my tooth in my mouth and i was like lining myself up with that guy in lamentations and so what we know is Susie larson said recently on my podcast she said what happens in your soul happens in your cells and that's a, a nice mm. kind of cheesy way to say it but it turns out to be true like the things you think about and the things that occur in your life and the experiences that you have and the traumas that pile up, they turn into neurochemical events that alter your hormones and your hormones alter your gene expression and your gene expression alters cell replication and your body changes in response to extreme stress. It does. And so one way to get ahead of that is to learn how to think differently about the things that you've gone through and start to reframe them in healthier ways or take charge of the next moments that happen. This did occur, but what happens next? And I think that's why uh, Gabor Mate is another psychologist and, mm -hmm. and psychiatrist who's written very well about trauma. And he's helped us understand this, what now everyone's calling this trauma-informed care, which is if I have a patient in the ER that's acting up, you know, cussing and throwing things and behaving inappropriately, we used to say, what's the matter with you? Why are you acting like that? And Gabor Mate and, and Bessel van der Kolk and these uh, people like that have started to teach us. It's a, a better question is what happened to you? You know, what, mm -hmm. what have you gone through that's producing this response to the stress that you're under right now? And let's unwind that a little bit and let's look at that stressor and then help you understand the way that your responses may not be the most helpful to you. And if we can learn better responses to the things that we're feeling, then maybe you'll have better interactions with others and you'll start writing a better story going forward and all that. So I think that's in, in the context of losing someone, it, it's important to understand your own responses. And when your responses aren't healthy, and a great example is, the percentage of people that lose a child that go on to get a divorce or become alcoholics or become, you know, lose their business or those things is staggering. It's something like 80% of people that get, get divorced after they lose a child. And why? It's because one or both of their trauma responses aren't healthy and they, they mm -hmm. come apart because they aren't responding appropriately. And so I think it's really important for each of us as we go through these hard things and these massive things in our lives to say, I need to critically evaluate my responses to what I'm feeling because I've seen other people wreck their lives after these massive things happen. And I don't want it to wreck mine. So good. You told a couple interesting stories about two patients of yours, Chuck and Tina, and how each yeah. of them had different approaches to their massive thing, exactly what you're talking about. And that both gave you some perspective on how you yourself were going through your grief. Would you mind telling the listeners a bit about that and how that shifted your viewpoint? Sure. Um, 
so Chuck, we called him Lucky Chuck. He's this guy who'd been struck by lightning three times and survived. So he, everybody called him Lucky Chuck. <laughs> He's a typical Wyoming cowboy. And and his wife had died of breast cancer a while back and his child had been born, stillborn. So he'd gone through a lot of hard things in his life and he got a brain tumor. Um, and when I saw him in the ER, it was one of those moments that I wrote about in my previous book is that I've seen the interview kind of thing where I, I knew exactly what was going to happen to him. And I told him we need to do a brain biopsy and all these things. And he decided he wasn't going to have surgery. He wasn't even interested in having a biopsy because mm -hmm. he felt like he'd, he'd had a pretty good life and he wasn't interested in chemotherapy and radiation. He just wanted to kind of ride off into the sunset like a, like a good cowboy. And that's what he ultimately did. And he died um, without ever having had a biopsy or any kind of treatment for his brain tumor. And he decided that he was comfortable with what he believed and that he was comfortable with getting reunited with his wife and daughter and that he wasn't interested in fighting an unwinnable battle with his body. And so he made that decision. He felt like it was easier to die than to go through all the surgery. Um, and then Tina, Tina Tisdale was a woman that had had a benign brain tumor removed several years before I met her by another surgeon. And she developed a, we call it post-craniotomy syndrome. And it's basically this pain syndrome or this, this abnormal feeling that some people that have had brain surgery feel for the rest of their lives sometimes where they perceive that there's something pressing in or growing in their head, even though it's not. And we'd scan them and work them up and we don't find anything. And they're just convinced that there's still something wrong. And she had that problem where she couldn't reconcile the fact that her head didn't feel normal with the fact that the scans were normal and there wasn't any bad thing happening in her head. It was just a sensation. It was a, a feeling. And so she ended up taking her own life because doctor after doctor told her that she couldn't, that nothing was wrong. It was all in her head and she couldn't live with that. And so she could not accept the fact that what she felt wasn't true. And so I draw a number of lessons from those two people, but the most important one from Lucky Chuck that I learned is that sometimes it, it might actually be easier to die. Like it's sometimes you're right. Like maybe there's not a, a fight that you want to fight and that might be okay for you. Um, I don't think that's generally the best plan. I, I think it's as a surgeon, I want to know yeah. what the problem is and biopsy it and, you know, at least put it before you so you can make an informed decision. But he was comfortable with his faith and what he believed about God. And he wasn't bitter and he wasn't angry. He just was sort of tired of fighting. And I think that that's a reasonable choice that some people can make in certain times in their lives. And whether it's a literal fight for your life or you just this particular battle isn't one that you want to fight anymore. And that's okay. So he was a man who shows us that sometimes your faith can make you make decisions that only make sense to you. And they don't really make sense to anybody else, but they're still okay. And they're right for you. And I think that's okay. What I learned from Tina really is this this notion that I teach my self-brain surgery students now really is feelings aren't facts. You know, we, our whole culture right now really is telling kids, especially that whatever you feel is your truth and you should fight for it. And don't let anybody tell you it's not true. And, and the, the bottom line is the truth is what you feel most of the time is just a chemical trigger in your brain. And it's not necessarily pointing towards anything that's really true. And we can have a whole nother conversation about secular culture and that. But the reality is when your life's on the line, if you feel something and the data doesn't bear it out, you need to tell your brain to think differently about what you're feeling, make better mm -hmm. decisions about the feelings, and they will reliably follow your decision-making. And so I learned from Tina that 
un, being unwilling to accept that you can have pain and still be okay and still have a meaningful life and still move forward with your husband and your children and all those things you can still have pain but also have purpose you have to be able to accept that and and she just couldn't it, it needed to feel normal for her or she couldn't live and she ultimately took her own life which is horribly tragic because mm -hmm. feelings are not facts and she for her they were and it and it ruined her bouncing off of that idea um according to your observation and analysis there are kind of four different kinds of people and approaches to going through traumatic and difficult things could you unpack those four approaches for us and sort of the pros and cons of each? Yeah. So, you know, like I said, my, my previous book had been a look at people with this particular diagnosis called glioblastoma and it's a malignant brain tumor that nobody survives. You and I talked about it the last time I was on your show. Um, and glioblastoma is this horrible cancer and, and people that get it tend to live about most of them live about 18 months and a few outliers live about five years. And so if you plot that out, how long you live versus the number of people that are still alive or how, how much time passes versus the number of people that are still alive, it goes kind of steadily downhill towards zero. And by about five years, it's almost zero. And what I started noticing is after people encounter these massive things and major traumas and whatnot, you can actually kind of plot out what their lives look at if you if you put rather than survival if you put things like quality of life or, or sense of purpose or happiness or hopefulness or any of those things on that on that axis and then plot that over time those curves are sort of mappable and it's not real scientific but but you can chart out what people's lives look like after trauma and i noticed that they tend to fall into sort of four categories and one of them looks just like that glioblastoma curve and i call those people crashers and these are folks that that seem pretty well put together they seem okay they talk about faith or talk about having hope and and then something happens and they just sort of plummet they lose their hope they lose their faith they lose their happiness and the most surprising thing to me is some of those people aren't the ones who have cancer. It's their husband or their spouse or their friend. And some of them survive their illness, but they're so bitter and so mad about having been sick or so shaken up by it that they never recover on that, on that hopefulness axis. And so some folks have this massive thing occur in their life and it just crumb, it just crushes them and they end up sort of either dead or in despair and unhappy and hopeless forever, regardless of what happens to their physical body. And so we'll call them crashers. And then there's a group called untouchables that are easy to understand, although they're hard to find. And I'm not one of them. These folks that seem to be sort of imperturbable or untouchable and nothing that happens can affect their faith or their hope. And they just seem to plow along and it's, it's okay all the time. And they're not, they're not crazy sort of unrealistic optimists. They're not Pollyannas. They just know what they believe and they are not affected particularly by their circumstances. They just figure out a new way to continue with their their way that they are wired to feel, which is hopeful or faithful or whatever adjectives you want to put on it. And so those people, their curve just sort of plows ahead. <laughs> Nothing seems to change for them. And that's not a very common group. And then the third one, I think the most surprising group to me was the ones I call climbers. And these are people, Joey in my previous book was a guy that would fall into this category. He's down and out. Is dad left when he was born his mom died at a young age he ends up in 
in the drug culture and ultimately gets arrested by the DEA and, and has a head injury during that altercation when he's getting arrested. And, and we found that he had a brain tumor because of this head injury. It was an accidental discovery, which you would think would make you happy. We found this thing that might save your life, but he was just miserable. And that, when I told him, Hey, we figured out that you've got brain cancer. His response was something like, well, of course I do. My whole life's been terrible. Why wouldn't I have brain cancer? He's just down and out and he never had faith and he never had hope. But remarkably, over the last year of his life, a chaplain befriended him, and he fell in love with somebody, and his family kind of came around him, and, and he sort of came alive in the last year of his life while he was dying. And he told me shortly before he died, this has been the best year of my life. And so he's, he sort of found meaning and found purpose and found hope and found happiness even though he was dying of his illness. And so his mm. curve looks the opposite of the crasher curve. It starts low and ends high. And so then the last group, we call them dippers, which I'm, I'm certainly a dipper. I think most people probably are. Mm -hmm. where, yeah, where you, you're you okay, you think things are well, you understand what you believe, and you hit this massive thing, and it just wipes you out for a little while. But then you land on something that you find to be true. You remember who you are. You remember what faith you have. You, your family comes around you and reminds you who God is and, and that you still have other things to live for. We had a granddaughter. Our first granddaughter was born on the day we buried our son, which mm. is beautiful and horrible and you know, amazing and terrible all at the same time. It was all jumbled mm. up. But that event for us was I was holding this little baby in my arms and it was life. And while I had my son in the ground, I had life in my arms and it was like, the, I, I could see, mm. okay, there's dark and there's light right here at the same time. And it gave me that, and that quantum physics thing that we talked about a while ago. And in this, this ability to say, Hey, this is a horrible thing, but there's still good stuff that I need to live for. And and that's, that's when I think my curve started going back up towards that hopefulness, happiness place. And, and truthfully, you know, I think we ought to take a moment and just mention the fact that everybody talks about the stages of grief, right? And, and truthfully, I think the stages of grief are probably just as jumbled up as these curves because most mm -hmm. people probably kind of fall into more than one of these models at a time, right? But it's really important for the listener to understand when you lose somebody, other people have a clock that they start running and they have some time that they think you're supposed to grieve. And and it's yeah. when they think you've grieved long enough, you start getting people saying, really, you're still having a hard time with that? Your friend, your friend died how long ago, Catherine? Really? You're still yeah. struggling with that, right? My son died 10 years ago. You haven't moved past that yet. Like people have a clock that they think you're supposed to navigate these five stages of grief that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross laid out. And if you don't navigate them fast enough, then people start giving you a hard time. And I think that yeah. may be one of the reasons why so many divorces happen, because the truth is mm -hmm. people grieve in different ways. And that's mm -hmm. why I wrote that Warren's law of suffering. Like we may, um, we may suffer together, but we grieve alone. Like your, your process is your process. And so it's really important for the listener to understand that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work was never intended to be applied to grieving over losing someone or grieving over losing a dream. Her work specifically was research into how people handle the news that they are dying. It was looking at cancer patients and what happens when they find out that they have six months or a year to live. And they do tend to kind of move through the news with denying it and then getting really mad about it and then trying to bargain with God about it or find a better doctor or doing all that stuff. And then finally they get pretty depressed and then finally they come to accept it. And, and that's a pretty good model in that specific instance that Kula Ross laid mm -hmm. out. 
but it's been taught by every psychology 101 professor and everybody online has been taught. This is how you grieve. There's five stages of grief and it's just not a good model when your best friend's killed in Iraq or when your when your son dies or when your wife leaves you or whatever. That model isn't meant for that. It's, it's bad data. And so there's lots of good research happening now. How do people actually grieve when it's something other than finding out that they're dying, right? Mm -hmm. So I say that all that just to say, don't put yourself on this clock. Don't let anybody else put you on a clock. And you're going to have a curve that's going to look something like you, and it might not look just like me, and that's okay. But I tried mm -hmm. to define those four trauma responses that I saw because I was trying to figure out what I was feeling and how to explain it to other people and try to maybe understand what my kids were going through, my spouse was, my wife was going through, and all of that stuff. And it just seemed to be pretty consistent among a lot of the other people that I was taking care of. And I thought maybe it was worth writing down. It seems to be helpful to people. Yeah, that's, that's so, so good. As one reads through your book, you keep circling back to the idea that how a person ultimately moves through something horrible or hard depends on their ability to separate their happiness from their circumstances. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, I think that's um, that's really the crux of the matter. If you if you distill all this data and all these things that I looked at and all the things that I've learned in ten years as a bereaved father and then twenty three years as a neurosurgeon, I think the thing I've learned the most is that happy people are the people who can absorb a blow and still find a way to think their life has meaning and purpose. That mm. in the subtitle of my previous book was faith, doubt, and the things we think we know. And I, and I put that in there because when we think we know something, we think this marriage is the one. It's going to last forever. I, I think I've finally made enough money, and I'm going to be happy. And I, you know, I think as long as I make it to get this degree or this job or this person says yes to me, then I'm going to be happy. And if you think that you need a particular thing or a particular amount of money or a particular person to love you or a particular best friend to be next door, then that thing can be taken from you. And you won't be happy anymore. So if you think you need a circumstance to go a certain way in order for you to have meaning and purpose and hopefulness in your life, and that thing turns out not to be true or is taken from you, then you're in trouble. And so what I've noticed is the people who become untouchable or become more like untouchables are those that say, yes, I love my wife. Yes, I love my children. Yes, I love my job. But I don't define my ability to have a meaningful life by the presence of or absence of those things. Mm -hmm. You've developed this idea you ended up calling the war and gap theory. Describe that for us, please. Yeah, so I looked at those curves, and I saw most of the people end up kind of finding their way. Most people find their way back to something that seems reasonable mm -hmm. for their life again after major trauma goes through they find their way back to hopefulness or purpose or they're living again they, they're, they're engaged in again they don't drink themselves into a hole they don't get divorced most people figure it out somehow but there's this group of people who don't they're crashers that just stay bottomed out on their live the tina tisdales that they just can't live anymore and i wanted i wanted to know what the gap is there what's the what's that gap between between those two curves. And I found this verse in, in Romans, caught me off guard. It might be Romans 4.18. Um, and it says, Abraham, against all hope, in hope believed. He believed mm -hmm. in hope, even when it was against all hope. 
And I realized that that's where faith lies. Like faith lies in that gap between against and hope. Like like in that sentence, you look at the guy, Abraham's life, and the, the backstory is from the Old Testament and Genesis. Abraham's promised that he's going to have a child. He's 90 years old. His wife is 90 years old. It's a ridiculous promise. He, there's no way that could be true. But he believed it anyway because he believed in God's good character. He, God had done a lot of other amazing things in his life, and he believed God was going to come through for him. And Paul then in the New Testament thousands of years later says – Abraham knew that the thing that had been promised him was not possible, but he also knew that he had a God who had done impossible things before, and so he just decided to believe it. He decided to have faith, and that's where faith lies is in that gap between against and, and hope, and so I, I, I kind of laid that out like that gap theory is what you have to do when the situation at hand feels impossible, and it does feel impossible when you get the news that your son's dead. What do I do now? Like, how am I ever going to be okay again? Mm -hmm. How am I ever going to move forward again? You know, 10 years later, I can, if we talk for five seconds about it, like I'm going to be crying and it, it's just as real and just as raw mm -hmm. as it was then. But I can embrace that and of, yes, that's true. And it's still terrible and it's, it will never be okay. But I also have a life that means something. And we're talking about stuff today because I was willing to start writing and, and talking about what happened in our family. And the reason I was willing to do that is because I recognize that some other people out there, Catherine, might not quite have what you and I have, this ability to articulate what we're feeling. And somebody out there needs that. So, somebody doesn't have that gift, and they're just wondering how they're ever going to find their way back. And they might hear your podcast and it might give them that little bit of hope, a little rung on the ladder that they can start climbing out of that hole. And I recognize for me, it's just this natural doctor, which is the same thing as being a teacher, is this, this, this oath that I have of trying to help other people learn some of the things that I've learned because somebody taught them to me. And so it wasn't that I was so smart. I learned it all by myself. Somebody ahead of me helped me. And I had a lot of bereaved parents come alongside me and say, hey, here, we've been doing this five years. Here's some things that work for us. And so I started writing and podcasting and all that stuff really with the aim of just trying to help other people find that light again. And I think that's, that's the way you start to find the, that faith at the top of that gap. For you and your family, the shift in your grief process came when you started to implement self brain surgery, um, as you call it, the ability to change your life by changing your mind. Um, to think about what you think about and perform what you call a, a thought biopsy. Would you touch on that for a second? Sure. You know, I'm not a plumber or clockmaker or some other some other occupation. I might use different metaphors, but but there's a dual purpose. It's not um, a joke that I, when I say self brain surgery, there's a dual purpose to it. One is just because it's sort of corny enough to catch your attention and make you say, "What's he talking about?" But it's also from a neuroscience standpoint, exactly true. Like if you mm -hmm. have a brain tumor and I need to cut it out of your head, I'm going to do some damage to your skull and your scalp and your brain in order to accomplish the goal of getting that tumor out. And, and I'm going to leave some marks on your head, a scar on your scalp, and I'm going to leave some scar tissue in your brain. And you may not be exactly like you were before, even if I can save your life. There's going to be some some traces of a person having done some surgery on your brain. But when you understand, Catherine, that you can change, literally change the way the cells in your brain behave mm -hmm. by changing how you think, 
about the events and circumstances and other people in your life. When you understand that you can change the neurochemical balance of your brain, when you understand that the, the science of epigenetics means that you can change how your genes are expressed by changing the things you think about, when you understand that that the cells in your reproductive organs, your 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 ova and your sperm actually change their DNA when you change the thought environment in your brain and your kids are born with things that they're happy about or things that they're nervous mm -hmm. about because of how you thought when you understand that that is self brain surgery like you are literally changing how your brain architecture happens and you're literally changing how your mind works by learning how to think differently and so it's not corny it just it's, it's kind of couched in some of these metaphors because i'm a surgeon but the fact is you are you are doing that work whether you're applying it for your benefit or you're applying it for your harm because it's happening, you make new neurons every day and you wire them in with synapses into patterns and behaviors and automated things that you think about and feel all day long, every day. And the Bible says two things that are important. Second Corinthians 10, five says, take captive every thought. And the Bible recognized those guys recognize that it's dangerous to let your thoughts run amok because when they do, you have a bias towards negative thinking and you're going to think yourself into a hole and worry yourself to death and decide a bunch of things that might not actually be true and, and let feelings push you around and all those things because we all do it, right? But the other thing it says is in Romans 12 too, this is sort of the theme song for the theme verse for self-brain surgeons everywhere. Don't be conformed. Don't let the world tell you how to think. Don't let your life tell you how to think. The, the verse actually says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. And what it means is don't let the pressure of your life make you think a certain set of things, but rather it says be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you're either going to get conformed to the stuff that happens to you, or you are going to transform it and turn it into something that you control by renewing your mind and you can do it all day long, every day. And we have this thing in neuroscience called Hebb's law. And Dr. Hebb was a neurophysiologist who figured out that when you make certain things happen over and over, whether it's making yourself do repetitive tasks where you think certain thoughts over and over, you create new synapses that automate those behaviors and you don't have to think about them to make them happen anymore. That's why you can get in your car to drive to a new place. So say you're, Let's say your your office moves to a new location, right? The first few times you drive that route, you've got to use the GPS and you've got to think about every turn and you got to pay attention to the stop signs and all that. And before you know it, you're drinking coffee and listening to the radio and you just get to work and you don't remember all the driving part. You just did it because you you made synapses to create all those turns and all that navigation and stuff, and you don't have to think about it actively anymore, right? That's Hebb's law in action. That's self brain surgery in action. You've taught your brain how to do a complex set of things that you don't have to use mental energy anymore to think about because you've done them enough that they've become automated, right? So that same thing happens with negative thinking. You, you're, whatever happens to you, your friend dies and you say, I'm never going to have a friend again. I'm right. never going to have that person back in my life. I'm just going to be lonely for the rest of my life. I might as well just, you know, quit. I might as well just join a support group and drink a couple glasses of wine every night. And that's what my life's going to look like now. And that'll become true if you let it. Or you can say, you know what? My son died and I'm never going to stop being sad about that. But I'm still alive and I still have a wife and four other kids and four grandchildren and a practice. And, and I need to do something with my life that tells a good story that Mitch would be proud of that, that can 
take that tragedy and add some value to the world to honor my son and his memory and make him proud of me. Because if I believe all those things I told you I believe earlier, then another thing I need to believe is in Hebrews chapter 12, it says there's a great cloud of witnesses up there watching us and cheering us on and they're wanting us to do well. And I had this vision of my son when I do something dumb, I, I had this vision of my son going, dad, don't do that. Don't do that, dad. Come on. You know, I, I, I don't know if that's biblical or not, but I have this, this scene in my head of seeing him going, yeah, that's good. That was a good thing you wrote and helped somebody over there, you know, and, and, I, and so you can, you can make your life mean something and you can turn those thoughts around and start automating and making it a little bit easier for you to think something positive next time. That's what self-brain surgery is. That's, that's the way I look at it. One thing I love that you've said frequently in both your writing and your podcast is that whatever trauma or hardship we've dealt with can, depending on your attitude, become either the thing that happens in your life or a thing that happens in your life. How you see and respond to it you know, is the difference. And you just touched on that briefly. Can you just explain that just a little bit further? Yeah. I mean, th th this is the person that you know, and unfortunately, all of us know this person. I can think of one right now. You bump into somebody that you haven't seen in a while and you say, how are you doing today? And they say, oh, I'm really sad. You know, I'm thinking about my, my cousin that died 35 years ago and I'm going to a support group to deal with that in a little bit. And that, that, that person lost someone 35 years ago and it's still the only thing they can talk about. It defines their day. They, they search out other people to commiserate with them about it. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with, with grieving and having your process take a long time or support groups or any of that. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you are in a support group that's letting you stay stuck on something that happened 35 years ago, that's not a very good support group mm -hmm. because the support group is supposed to help you find the ways to move forward in your life. That's what they're for right? To find a way to process that pain and turn it into something else so that you can move forward in your life. And so it, when I talk about the thing or a thing, it's just to make this point that you're going to have hard things happen in your life. These massive mm -hmm. things are going to occur. And if one of them becomes the defining moment of your life and you can't move past it, then in biblical terms, we would say that's that's becoming an idol to you. Is the definition of an idol mm. is something that you put in place of God or something that's bigger than God. And I would certainly say, if you say this particular thing that happened, I can never get over, I can never move past, it will always define me, then that's become a God in your life. And I would just gently suggest to you that there's a much better path, and that path is to start learning the word A. This is a thing that happened. It may be a devastating thing. It may be a terrible thing. It may be a horrifying thing, but it is a thing. And it's not the only thing that's ever happened in your life. And it won't be the only thing that happens again. There will be something else hard that happens. And guess what? I don't want to spoil the story, but you're going to die someday, which is also a horrible thing, right? But there's other traumas and tragedies and massive things that are going to come along. And you're going to miss so much beauty and joy and life around mm -hmm. you if you let that previous thing become the thing, because it'll become all you can see. I took care of a guy who, his name, I called him Anthony in the book. He had an injury to his facial nerve, which is the nerve that we use to close our eye and smile, the facial expressions. And I, I just, I learned from him this idea that if you can't close your eye, you can't stop looking at something, then eventually your cornea is going to get scarred up by the air and pressure and mm -hmm. the contact with dirt in the air and all that stuff. If you can't blink and clear that out and close your eye, you're going to go blind someday. 
And the last thing you'll remember seeing is whatever it was you were looking at that whole time that you couldn't close your eye. And I just re I realized I was doing that with the loss of my son. It was just my whole life was about thinking about it, looking at it, thinking about the loss, thinking about the trauma. And I had to learn how to blink and look at something else. And when I did, I realized there's still a whole lot of other things out there that need to be looked at and deserve to be looked at. My wife and my other children and my grandkids and my patients and you and my listeners and readers, they deserve to be looked at and listened to because they're they're another beautiful thing in my life. And there's some beautiful things and there's some hard things. But you got to have and, and they can't be the only thing. Mm. Toward the end of your book, you talk about the hard work of wellness and why doing the difficult preparatory work ahead of your massive thing does so much to help you out when it eventually hits and why the rehab process in his wake is equally important. What are some of the ways a person can prepare their soul and mind on some level for difficult situations when they arise? Yeah, that's a critical thing is when you come to my office and your back hurts um, and I realize you're going to need back surgery, I almost never just schedule surgery. I usually, unless there's a really emergency, I usually send you to the physical therapist for a few weeks and we do something called prehab. And prehab is this idea that your body's getting ready to go through this traumatic event and surgery, because surgery's hard on you, and you're going to need to get stronger, and you're going to need to learn some postural things and some occupational things and how to navigate your life after the surgery so you don't hurt yourself. And so you'll be stronger and more able to absorb the blow of surgery and heal from it and get better and not be sort of crushed by it. Because surgery, sometimes older people and sicker people, sometimes surgery is too much for their bodies and they get infections and blood clots and they end up being worse off than they were before. Mm -hmm. But if we do prehab, the studies have shown clearly that people have better outcomes if they spend some time in rehab. And I just realized like if over and over in the Bible and over and over in my own experience, like people that don't have any sort of pre-thought that they might encounter hard things in their life, are just devastated when it happens. Like, mm -hmm. they, they, wow, how could this ever happen to me? I didn't think it could ever happen to me. And Christians are really vulnerable to it. Mm -hmm. If we buy into this lie that if I'm faithful, nothing bad will ever happen. Or if you absorb this Joel Osteen type, I don't mean to name names, but but there are some some pastors and preachers out there who teach that if you're faithful enough and you give enough and you do all the right things that God will bless you and give you all these good stuff and protect you from harm. That's not biblical at all. I mean, Jesus said it, you're going to have trouble in this world. And every one of the apostles died for, for their faith, except John mm -hmm. on the island of Patmos, who was exiled. So it's not true, and it's not biblical that you will be protected from harm and any kind of suffering if you're faithful. It's just not. So if you have that idea and then something bad happens to you, you're going to say, what happened? What's wrong? Why did God do this? I was faithful. Why did this happen? So prehab is the idea then that we fill our hearts and our minds with true things, carefully vetted true things. I think Scripture is one of them good books like hope is the first dose. <laughs> like, so fill your mind and your heart with good stuff and remind lucky Chuck taught me that his wife taught him before she died. Like remind yourself who God is, make some decisions about God before I die so that you won't be mad at him when you need him the most. So that's prehab is just fill your heart up with stuff that you can recall or remember and move towards. And that's how you produce hope. And then we did the self brain surgery bit already, but the, the rehab process is so important 
after you go through the hard thing, that's when you need the community, the support group, the, the therapists, the family, the church, the, the, the good books, the, the, the memories that you can process to help you remind yourself that this isn't going to be the end of you, that there's mm -hmm. going to be a path forward, that there's still light out there somewhere, and, that, and you're going to be able to find it again because other people have. And so I define hope as this verb, this action word of remembering that it, I'm not the only one who's gone through this before. I've had hard stuff happen before and I made it through and then moving towards some of those promises and making them manifest as true in your life by the action of moving forward. And that th those three things work together to give us that treatment plan idea that I said that, that can help us reliably find hope again. We could honestly keep talking all day about this and I don't want to take up all of your time, but I'd love for you to touch on something that, that you also said in the book. You can't wait for the pain to go away before you start moving. We must relentlessly refuse to participate in our own demise. This is so profound and I, I'd love it if you'd expound on that for a second. Yeah, the the first time I heard that was a guy, Marcus Green, who had a spinal cord injury and I sent him to, to rehab. I sent him to a rehab hospital to try to get better. And he just almost quit. He was in so much pain. It was so weak and his spinal cord wasn't working well. We did the surgery and made everything right. But it, those injuries take a long time to heal. And he was just tired and you know, was tired of being in pain. And he was just ready to go to hospice and give up. And his wife and his physical therapist and his kids gathered around him and said, you are not going to give up. You're, you're going to get up and move. And he realized that that movement caused pain. But when he engaged in the movement and, and had the pain that the next day, the pain he was suffering from was a little bit less. And then mm -hmm. over time, every day when he pushed through that wall of pain and broke through that inertia to go to rehab, that he started feeling a little bit better. And then he would anticipate the next day would even be better than that. And before long, he walked into my office with a cane and he's back on his feet again. And he said he had to make a decision. He came to this crossroads where he was either going to give up and just die because it hurt too much to move and he was tired of it, or he was going to, in his phrase, I stole it from him. He was going to relentlessly refuse to participate in his own demise. Like he, mm -hmm. I'm just not going to lay here and kill myself by inactivity or negative thinking. I'm going to fight for my own health. I'm going to fight for my own recovery. I'm going to fight for my own restoration and hope again, because if I don't, who's going to fight for me? And the truth is Catherine, mm -hmm. like, God is faithful to us, but nobody is coming to rescue you from your own negative thinking. Nobody's coming to save yep. you from your own mindset. God will give you the tools. He already has. He's given you the tools and he'll put the right books in your play, in your lap and he'll put the right people around you, but you got to change your own mind and you got to do it. And that's, that's really why I called the book. Hope is the first dose. It's like, I can, you can come to me with a brain tumor. God forbid. And I can give you the perfect surgical plan. Like I say, here's what we got to do, Catherine. And I can, I can fix this for you. But if you get up that morning of surgery at home and you say, you know what? I don't think I'm going to the hospital and you don't go. The best plan in the world isn't going to help you if you don't drive down to the hospital and consent for surgery and let them put that IV in and, you know, sign the forms and go to the operating room and let the anesthesiologist anesthetize you and all that. You, you won't benefit from what I can give you if you're not willing to engage and, and accept the risk of the treatment plan, right? And what separates the people who go and do it and fight for it from those that just lay down and die, what separates them is hope. And so hope is the first dose. You have to believe that that treatment is going to help me. 
there is a path forward. I can get better. Maybe I won't die from this. Maybe I will, but at least I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to teach my kids that my dad fought for that. You know, my, my mom didn't give up and she told a great story with her life. She didn't make it through the cancer, but boy, she lived. Right. So we had, we can change our thinking about it. Like we redefine why we're alive and what, what value and meaning and purpose is. And once we do, that then the sky's the limit on that curve that we can tell we can write with our own life and we can separate it from the circumstance of what happens to our physical body isn't the same as what happens to our spirit and what happens to our our hope and so that that's really what that means final question if there's someone listening today who's currently going through their tmt or is perhaps trying to move forward from it what words of encouragement or hope could you leave them with yeah, so critical question. This is super important. Please remember that none of us have the right to put a clock on when it's time for you to move forward. Um, in surgery and in, in neurotrauma, we we understand that there are some injuries. We call it the primary injury. There's some injuries that are that, that create so much brain swelling and so much tissue trauma that if we do surgery right then we can actually make the patient worse because what's needed is a, a little bit of time for that initial injury to settle down and the swelling to settle down and for things to set up where surgery to fix the problem will actually make the problem better and not worse and we won't create those secondary injuries so i just say that to give you this permission to understand that when your child dies or when your friend dies or when you find out you've got cancer or whatever it is that there is going to be a period of time when you can't move, when you're hurting so bad. Sorry, I got a dog barking over there. Hold on one second. So if you can, if you need to understand that there's a period of time and only you can really define that there's a period of time when it's not really possible or even appropriate for you to start moving forward. And I guess the last, I'll give you an example from the Bible of uh, King David in second Samuel. We, we hear this story of how his son is dying and he gets the word that the child is dying and he spends several days praying and fasting and weeping and begging God to change it and not make it come true. And then the baby does die. The, the child actually does die. And then David does a really weird thing, Catherine. He gets up and he calls for his servants to bring him something to eat and he takes a shower and he gets dressed and, and he goes back to work. Like immediately after his child dies, he just goes back to work and his advisors all say, wait, what are you doing? Your, your child just died. And he said, well, the kid's dead. I prayed and it didn't work out. And I might as well just go about my business. And then if, and it's just really weird. And it sounds like, boy, he must be really tough, right? He just, he just got up and shirked it off and went on back to work. But if you look at what happens to his family after that, his family becomes a disaster. I mean, the Bible says he goes on, he starts a war with the neighboring kingdom. He has another child really soon after that. One of his adult sons rapes one of his daughters from another marriage. And that one of that sister's brother murders the other son that, that did the raping. And, and, and then David basically is in conflict with all of his children for the rest of his life. And the Bible says the sword never departed from his house. And so why did that happen? If we look at it through the lens of 21st century people who understand neuroscience and neurotrauma, we would say maybe it happened because he didn't grieve, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe it happened because he didn't, he didn't have an appropriate trauma response. And so he 
tried to shove his life back into his family and it just didn't work because he was mad and he was angry and he was sad. He was probably not a very good dad. He wasn't attended to his kids. There's this line in second Samuel when one of his sons tries to rise up and take the throne from him. And, and the Bible says this happened because David never said, why do you act the way that you do to his son? Like he never actually tried to parent him again. And that happened because he didn't grieve properly, I think. And so I just say all that to say this, like give yourself appropriate amount of time and maybe you need you do need some community around you, some people who will nudge you and say, hey, Catherine, you know, let's go for a walk today. Maybe it's time you put your pajamas, you know, get out of your pajamas and take a shower and eat something. Maybe it's time for you to go back to, you know, you need some people who will nudge you, but not force you to get back on your feet. And then eventually you will. But when it's time and when you know it's time, then you've got to start moving forward again. Okay. You've just got to. And you'll start applying these treatment plan ideas and you'll start applying these good ideas that throughout time have helped people recover. You can read widely, read Bessel van der Kolk, read the Bible, read Lee Warren if you want to, and listen to podcasts and, and find some people around you who will kind of demand almost that you try to get back into your life because they love you and they want you to be well. And, and you'll find your way back and you'll, you'll be hopeful again. Thank you so much for joining us again, Dr. Warren. It's always a delight to have you here to share your wisdom with us. And I look forward to the next time we get to do this. Blessings Thank you so much, to you. Catherine. It's good to see you. Appreciate you. A big thanks again to Dr. Warren for being with us today. And thanks to you, the listener, for spending time with us as we talked about hope, healing, and moving forward after the massive thing. Difficult times are going to happen to all of us, expected or unexpected, and the difference in how to get through them depends on how we're willing to respond. I hope you've taken away a lot of helpful information today and feel uplifted in some way, even though we've discussed some heavier things. You can find Dr. Warren's book, Hope is the First Dose, anywhere books are sold, and I really hope you'll go and pick up a copy to read it for yourself. I promise you won't regret it. As always, you can listen to past content from Grace Moments wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can also follow my weekly blog at www.graceopens.blogspot.com. You can feel free to connect with me on social media as well. I'll see you next time, and until then, keep moving forward, and remember that Grace will always meet you where you are. Thank you.